The Deadbeat, where we talk all things obituaries, true crime, and the politics of loss. I'm Mary-Kate Gorman. And I'm Solana Quistorf. The familial mourning, that is not my beef with the obituaries. Tell me your beef, though. What's the beef? (laughs) There's always a beef. Okay, so here we are, getting comfortable. Kind of like as if we were just dating each other in the first week and we just decided for the first time we could stop wearing mascara every day. Gotcha. (laughs) I can only see the very top of your face. (laughs) That's all you need to know. The eyebrows are the most expressive part, really. We recently recorded an episode, which we decided to call Negative One, because we are excellent planners, (laughs) perhaps the best planners that have ever planned anything. We covered what this podcast is going to be about, a little bit about us, a little bit about what we are worried about. Certainly non-essential content, but interesting content to me. And Mary-Kate is nodding. A little funny, too. That people should go listen to if they have the chance. Anyways, this is what we're calling episode zero. And the reason we're calling it that is because it's taking a little bit of a different form than the other podcasts we're hoping to do. We're talking a little bit about the histories of our genres. Because I think it's important to add a little bit of context before we rip these things to shreds. Yes. That is Mary-Kate Gorman over there. That is Solana over there. And off to... Our side here, we have Greg, who is our wonderful producer, who we're forever and always deeply indebted to. Our light and shining armor. You like that? I do. Not night, but light. I see what you did there. Thank you. Because it's winter and I have to outside. <laughs> <laughs> He's from Boston, if that gives you an idea of what we mean by light. Greg's taken on an almost translucent quality. <laughs> um, we didn't want to say anything, but Solana's brought it up. <laughs> I can't help myself. I just You put a microphone in front of me. There's nothing I won't say. But on this podcast, we're discussing what we have termed the politics of loss. We are really interested in exploring how certain stories of death and certain people are favored over others in grievability. And yeah, this is the term that we've kind of coined for it, the politics of loss. Because I do think the ways in which we grieve folks, not always necessarily, but oftentimes can be political. Like the bodies we choose to grieve, the stories we choose to mourn, the stories we choose to publicize. And I think that's really the kind of like investigation that we want to set up today Mm -hmm. is in future episodes, we'll look at case studies and we're really trying to determine how do we read the politics that are embedded in these stories of tragedy and loss. And I think sort of our guiding question for this episode in particular is how do we use the rhetoric surrounding people who have died? How do we talk about these people and their stories without exploiting them? That is pertinent to both of our genres, but I also think that I got into this question because true crime is entertainment. And so then it's really using these horrible, sad, brutal stories for money-making purposes and for entertainment purposes, which, I mean, just to kick us off, is I think kind of how I got into this question of what are true crime podcasts really doing? How did you come to that same question with the obits? Well, I think that, as anybody would, I came to them because I started to lose people. There's a quote from this this book by Marilyn Johnson that I've always really loved. And she says, what's most valuable about the obit, any good obit, is how it tries to nail down quickly what it is we're losing when a particular person dies. And that always spoke to me. And I think that's the thing that I have always revolved around. When I came to the obituaries, there's moments in my life when I was trying to nail down what I had lost. I don't mean to make it sound like I experienced any kind of great tragedy or anything like that at a young age, but your grandparents pass away, you know, these things happen. And I do find it interesting that the obit section, of course, doesn't become interesting to you until you have lost someone. 
I think that we both were kind of taken with an essay by Judith Butler about grievability and grievable bodies and who counts as grieving. Mm -hmm. And they have this quote where they say, if grieving can ever be successful, and if when you do the act of the obituary, say, you have like completed grief and you can move on. And I think in a lot of ways, these genres deny the tragedy of loss because they're trying to do just that where they move us on from any of the negative emotions that happen with loss through forms that are trying to help us understand them or, mm-hmm. or like are a, a box to check in the list of grieving. And I think our genres kind of do opposite things in terms of closure. The obituary feels very much like a closure. It's the last word, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of the final mark on the way out. When I think about true crime podcasts, I feel like it's a denial of closure Mm -hmm. for families and people who have actually experienced these losses. And more than that, too, I think that there's this component that I can talk about a little bit that happens in the 2000s, which is a crowdsourcing moment where these stories open up opportunities for investigations. So a lot of times true podcasts or true crime podcasts or true crime revolves around unsolved cases. And so then it becomes this moment, instead of putting the nail in the coffin, so to speak, to open up and kind of take another look at a tragedy very closely. But I think that's also a very optimistic way to look at it because the crowdsourcing component, especially in the 2000s, focused largely on unsolved cases of white women. So then the cases that are solved or revolve around not those kinds of bodies who don't receive police attention anyways mm-hmm. and don't receive the investigative attention after they get publicity is a different story where it is denied a certain level of moving on. And sorry, I'm kind of jumping back now to the obits, but I guess when I looked at them, I couldn't figure out why no one was talking about them especially in academia, because I was an undergrad at the time. And I was like, wow, these are super interesting. Like, to me, it's a very rich cultural document. It's kind of like a treasure trove of trivia facts. And it was so odd to me that death is like the one universal experience, right? And it was so weird to me that we just didn't talk about the obits. We just kind of pass over them. I think we kind of take them for granted. And when I started to read them, I was so perplexed by the fact that it could feel very private to an individual, to a family. You know, it felt like you were getting some kind of secret, some side of inside information a little bit. And at the same time, feel so very distanced and contrived because it's a very particular formula that they all follow. And I was interested in how people dealt with that when they had to write obituaries. My grandmother on my mom's side Mm -hmm. passed away when I was in high school. We were very, very close. Um, Sorry. No, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was just, and, and I was just lucky to have her. It was a blessing and a gift and, but of course death is inevitable. And I mean, I still have a copy of her obituary. And when I read it, I was like, well, this can't be it. Because to me, the the gap that she left felt so huge. And I didn't understand how this little newspaper clipping was the thing that summed it all up. That felt too impossible to me. The last way that they appear in writing. Yeah. Yeah. I think I told you this, that it's almost a year anniversary of my grandfather passing away. But he had severe Alzheimer's. So it felt like we were always kind of losing him slowly. Mm -hmm. And then there was no obituary because where they wanted to publish it was the LA Times or something because he he used to be a broadcaster for the news affiliate with them. And it would have cost like two grand. Isn't that insane? (laughs) My grandma was just like, I'm sorry. I just am not, it's not worth it to me because he lost his words a long time ago. So it felt almost disingenuous to suddenly put out this like statement about him but so there's a formula for obituaries Mm -hmm. this might be jumping the gun a little bit but i'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about where obituaries come from 
this is super interesting and this is just like nerding out about obituary <laughs> history so yeah. I feel like as with anything in this culture, we love to give credit to the Romans. We're like ancient yes. Rome, ancient Greece. Plumbing, we love pizza. Like everything. Did they do pizza? <laughs> Greg just shook his head. I don't know. <laughs> Feels like they did. <laughs> Anyways, I'm sorry. History. Yeah, of course. It like dates back to ancient Rome. And I think they wrote on like papyrus scrolls or something <laughs> of that nature. I don't know. And so, of course, it evolves from there. And... It's not surprising, right? Like anything that appears in the newspaper, the evolution of the obits follows the evolution of the printing press. So after the printing press was invented and newspapers were in more of a wide circulation, you do start to see obits, but they definitely didn't look like what we associate with obits today. What were they like? Like a death notice? They resembled exactly what we would call a death notice right now and it was more to let the community know that someone had died it was like mm-hmm. name past Solonaquistorf died yeah i mean that Copy that was that. the essence of them like it was literally just a notice that let the rest of the world know that someone had passed away of course it makes sense that they would be shorter like with a printing press if you have to set the whole thing by hand yeah you want these suckers to be short <laughs> Unless you're Be- a Betty very Sue down person. the street was probably a lovely <laughs> lady, but we're putting together printing blocks by hand, and like we just don't got the time or the space to chit chat about her accomplishments and achievements. In the U.S., they start to crop up more commonly in probably like the early to mid 19th century. Mm-hmm. Again, partly due to advancements in the printing press, it's easier to set types so they could publish longer notices, but. When the Civil War hit, that actually pretty fundamentally changed how obituaries worked. It led to one longer obituaries that had a little bit more personal detail, and it meant that obituaries became more common because the United States was a country divided and people had family on the other Mm -hmm. side oftentimes. And so people were trying to keep track of their loved ones who, so this who, is during the war? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay. They would publish them during the war. And it became a way to track potential family members who you lost. You begin to see more personal touches, but not many. They're like mostly very, very short bios. Nothing too flashy. <laughs> Certainly not. It was the Civil War. <laughs> there was a war on. Is there flashiness in the obituaries? I mean, I would say more so now. In, in yeah. something like the New York Times, they do a little flourish mm-hmm. now and again. Mm-hmm. A little flash, a little, like a little pomp and circumstance. Also, just been thinking about very flashy obituaries. They're like sh- literally have disco balls hanging off them. Well, like like the musical version. <laughs> it rhymes. Have you ever seen a rhyming obituary? I have not. But do you think we could do flash mob obituaries? Performance obituaries. Both. I'm just saying, if it's on Broadway, we said it here first. <laughs> That's a great idea. It's the next Hamilton, really. <laughs> and Somebody called Lin Manuel Miranda. This flash mob had like uh, the capability to predict when somebody's going to die, and so they would go up to somebody and start singing their Ooh. obituary, and then they would die oh, while they were singing. That's a little ominous. I don't know if we could sell people Lin Manuel Miranda, mm-hmm. hit us up, bro. We heart you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, history of obituaries. <laughs> No, I mean, of course, right? Like, logically, it just expanded. And then you begin to see the development of what we kind of think of as the standard obituary frame. And that's the name, notice of death, the little bio, kind of funeral info for anybody who wants to go to that, list of survivors. It's usually not necessarily always in that order, but those are the components that you get. And interestingly, there's not much scholarship about obituaries. Mm -hmm. There's just not a ton out there. I pulled a lot from Janice Hume. She's a scholar who wrote Obituaries in American Culture and then the Johnson book. But in terms of like history stuff, that's mostly what I've pulled from. There's just not a lot. I think Hume's really interesting because she did a study of obituaries. Like she went back into the archives and pulled old obituaries Mm -hmm. And read a ton of them 
And she found that they reflect the values of a changing nation. So what is highlighted in them, like the attributes about certain people that get highlighted, changes over time. That's so interesting. Yeah. So early on, in like 1818, for instance, (laughs) any connection to George Washington, like it didn't matter what kind. It didn't matter if one time your dog walked past (laughs) George Washington on the street. That would appear in the obituary. Like Washington was a big deal. They still do that on the East Coast, I think. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You could be considered the revolutionary patriot if you had any kind of... Yeah. Of course, later with westward expansion, Mm -hmm. the quote unquote pioneering spirit, uh, fierce individualism, things like that get highlighted much more because of where we were at as a country. I mean, where white society was and where they were headed. So I feel like this is a natural question, but what about now? I mean, many argue that modern obituaries are more exciting and more liberated and doing much more interesting things. And they are in some ways. Like the New York Times especially, and that's the one I will turn to a lot in this podcast because mm-hmm. it's the one I've I've probably read the most in terms of the big newspapers. I've also read a lot of local ones. But the Times is kind of the newspaper of record, right? Yeah. And their obituary section is the obituary section of record. So that's the one I'm most familiar with. And, I mean, they are more anecdotal and they do tell a little bit more of an interesting narrative, certainly. And they will touch on potentially negative aspects of someone who's died of like an obituary subject. And I do think you see more freedom and honesty in this section than you would have in the Civil War. Yeah, of course. Or something like that. Potentially freedom and honesty are those values we hold dear now. Mm -hmm. So it's less the content and more the form that's reflecting maybe how we are as a society. But that's super interesting. And of course, they're interested in doing more feature style pieces, crafting a narrative, engaging a reader. That's what they want to do because they're trying to sell papers. And I do think they are trying to address the complexities of character a little bit more than they used to. For instance, I think about Colin Powell, who passed away. Gosh, was that in October? It was October. And unfortunately, due to complications with COVID-19. But he's somebody who I think in the typical American conscious is very defined by a single moment. But I do think the Times tries to address his entire path, his entire trajectory. um, And he was the first black national security advisor. So it's interesting how it becomes the last written word on his life, maybe. And maybe also the first written word about his historical position and legacy. I mean, that's that's kind of where I feel like we are today and kind of the the changing values and how that impacts the obituaries is very interesting to me. I also wonder, I have so many questions, but I wonder if obituaries have a a regional influence. Like we were saying, I do think, I was being kind of funny, but on the East Coast there is still a tie to like if you're a ancestor of a revolutionary person, that's like a big deal, you know? Paul Revere. Yes, exactly. Though less, and I think this time of reckoning that we're having, But also, like, we live in a generation that is seeing the boomers die. So I wonder if obituaries turn to be a dime a dozen or highly coveted or highly important. And I think it's interesting that you're diving in now with kind of a long term, you know, ability to look at as different generations pass what that will look like. And I mean, the Internet changes everything. And this is something that I haven't really looked into as much, but you see some folks turning away from the traditional obituary published in the local newspaper and folks are like, I'll just put it up online. Yeah. And then for one, you have way wider reach, way more people see it, way more people know. Yeah. And they can comment instantly. So that changes everything too. Well, my first introduction with how the obituary gets political was an essay we read for class by Judith Butler violence morning in politics which we will link to in the bio but they have this quote which i'll read 
that says a hierarchy of grief could no doubt be enumerated. We have seen it already in the genre of the obituary, Mm -hmm. where lives are quickly tidied up and summarized, humanized, usually married or on the way to be heterosexual, happy, monogamous. And that was maybe the beginning of my introduction to your project, because at this time you'd already been looking at obituaries for a while, where I'm like, duh, totally you read the obituary that's like, happy grandpa. He did a great job repopulating the earth with good Christian kids. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, rest in peace, Gramps. It's very interesting. And the other thing that I kind of want to talk about a little bit is my grandfather on my dad's side. Because I never knew him. He passed away actually three days before my parents got married. He lived in New York. They had a farm in upstate New York. That's where my dad grew up. And he came out to Wyoming for the wedding. And they were out sightseeing, and he had an asthma attack that turned into a heart attack, and he was gone. And they they ended up still getting married yeah. the same day they had planned. And not everyone was even in Wyoming yet. Like, folks were oh, still wow. traveling, so they were trying to make sure that news didn't get out anywhere before everyone had landed. Because my grandpa was... The chairman to the board of supervisors for Sullivan County in Parksville, New York. Tiny community in upstate New York. Big fish, small pond. Yeah. I mean, he was like a very, he was a local politician and widely respected and liked. Mm. Seems to be the consensus I get. And so they were worried that news would get back before they had had a chance to like tell everybody who was still like traveling. This is before texting this time. And so... They went ahead with the wedding because everyone was out here. And then my folks had to had to go back to New York for the funeral. I mean, that was like oh, how... As newlyweds. Yeah, that was like how it started, which is hard. But the reason I bring it up is because I never knew him. And so the way I have accessed him is, of course, through... Like, of course, stories my dad tells me and things like that and funny anecdotes and memories that he shares... But we also have all these clippings from obituaries and newspapers. And like I said, because he was a local politician, there were quite a few news stories about it. I've got some of them here. And this is like the true obituary. There's a quote in here from the Sullivan County clerk who says he was a uniting force on the board while he was there. It's all very complimentary. It's all very nice. What did this one say? Walter Sippel, present chairman of the Board of Supervisors, said he was probably the most decent, trustworthy, kind person I've ever worked with since I've been in public office Mm. and served the town of Neversink for 16 years, was dedicated, concerned, selfless public service. This one... This was like the big, this like ran, this was like the big ass headline. It says, she just showed it to me, it says, County Mourns Gorman. But this one says, flags at the county government center will fly at half staff today. Wow. In tribute of Gorman. Like, I'm so lucky to have this and I'm so thankful for it. But the thing that I've realized as I've read these and continue to come back to them is that they tell me exactly how I should feel about the loss. And exactly what I should think about the man. Of course, I do feel that way because he was my grandpa and, like, by all accounts, seems to be a great guy. But I'm, like, I find part of me wanting to know, like, really there was, like, no annoying trait. Like, he didn't leave his dirty socks yeah. out in the living room. Did like, he there smoke? Was... Did he drink? Yeah. 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 There was nothing, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And it's, that's the thing about memory is I feel like it... It has to contain a person, and in order to do that, it has to, I think, shave away certain things, sometimes big, sometimes small, Yeah. in order to accomplish that. And I'm like, well, this obituary certainly tells me how to feel about my grandpa, but I then I realized that that's how they're all operating. Yeah. Well, because it's almost like for you who never got to meet him that you're trying to reach 
maybe not maybe not you but maybe i listening here am trying to reach some part of humanity mm-hmm. but that is not the function of the obituary even though it seems like it is to me the obituary is a checkbox on the list of grieving not a snapshot into the person and mm-hmm. their world and their life yeah. even though it kind of pretends that it is. Yes, it very much parades as the snapshot and doesn't actually always achieve that. That's so interesting. And it just makes me think that when I was student teaching, uh, we lost a student, which is a tragedy that I won't get into, but it was so sad. But this girl in class had like bright blue hair and she was so spunky and she was like kind of like a fuck you to her teachers, which I loved because I was that way, you know. And then, yeah, I remember this horrible tragedy happened and then I read her obituary mm-hmm. and it's like the picture from her seventh grade church camp looking exactly how her family probably wanted her to look. But I felt like for me who had really gotten to know her, in a very unique, weird, strange way, it was unrecognizable, which perhaps was part of the sad part, too, is because Mm -hmm. we don't really get to know each other the way that we think we do, and our families don't maybe know how other people know us sometimes, you know, and I'm certainly not saying that I knew her better than anybody else, but I think it's very interesting how the obituary functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and no, you, you didn't necessarily know her better, but you knew her in a different way. Totally. And that's authentic too Mm -hmm. you know and i think that's another really interesting question who is the obituary for yes yes is it for the family is it a processing tool is it for the deceased yeah even though they're no longer here i think depending on who has died the public seems to feel different claims Mm -hmm. to what the obituary should do And I wonder, like, because obviously if you're writing the obituaries, you're on the deadbeat, right, which is where our name comes from. But in small town papers, does a family submit the obituary sometimes? Some small town newspapers will have staff writers, Mm -hmm. not like the Laramie Boomerang, where we're located in Laramie, Wyoming, does not have a staff writer that I know of. The Cody Enterprise, I'm originally from Cody, Wyoming, up north. They do not have a staff writer. And so those are all coming from the family. The family pays to have them put in the newspaper and they're written by usually a family member or a friend or someone close to the deceased. Yeah, yeah. I want to make it very clear that in and of itself, I have no problem with the practice of the obituary writing and the public mourning. Yeah. Or even like the familial mourning. That is not my beef with the obituaries. Tell me your beef, though. What's the beef? (laughs) (laughs) There's always a beef. Yeah, we're in Wyoming. There's more cows than people in the state. As I've read them, I've noticed that death is supposed to be the great equalizer. It's a thing that kind of levels the playing field. There's always this inherent promise that everyone gets a fair shot at the obit, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody has the opportunity to get one. And to circle back to Hume... I think that it is cool to trace the trajectory of what a changing nation values, what a changing nation is going through. But if these documents are highlighting societal values, how many bodies does that leave out? The most vulnerable bodies I've found are often not the most grievable in how they're treated. No, that's that's totally true. And that's what Butler says, is that if you're already not viewed as fully human, you don't seem to have fully died. Yes. And, and so there's nothing so tragic that we should be grieving is, is the yeah. is the implication. And Hume says, and this is a direct quote, in a democracy that extols egalitarian values. Many Americans have been excluded from obituary pages Mm. and many attributes have been ignored. And so exclusion to me becomes a really big deal in the obits. And I'm interested in who is absent and also what is absent. The New York Times, I'm going to keep coming back to them, but it's selective in who it represents. You have to be selected based on your impact. Mm. That's how they define their criteria. Nice. You You don't get to just like 
show up and be like, Uncle Joe died. They have full power over who they feature. A documentary came out in 2016, actually, that follows the writers mm. at the New York Times obituary desk. The it's, dead beaters? It's just called Obit. Oh. I, I wish. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I actually highly, highly recommend that documentary. We can link to it in our show notes. But I think the way that those writers talk about people really deserves our attention. There's one scene where editors are in a meeting and one of the editors, editors is talking about an obituary subject and says, I think he's worth a short. In just like, why did I think you were going to say something positive? <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah. and it's just like, it's like a transaction. Mm-hmm. It's day to day. And it's like, how much space, yeah. time, money can we devote to this body? There's no amount of time or print space to recover all of the people that should have gotten an obituary. But when I was studying the 19th century and a lot of the racial violence that happened then, there was a journalist called Ida B. Wells who wrote the Red Record, which basically proved that lynching was never associated to the crime, basically. Because a lot of people in the country that they were justified because it was some sort of like justice served. But she's like, no, 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 no. It's just racism. She proved all of these things. She's a brilliant journalist and she never got an obituary of course Mm -mm. because she lived in the time of a bad bad time to be alive i don't know i'm just interested in all of the people like her i want to come back to that next episode Ooh, a little teaser yes Mm. but william mcdonald who's featured in this documentary and he is the at the time when the documentary came out he was the like head editor of the obit desk And he argues that they're not in the business of, quote, making judgments about anybody's worthiness as a human being, but we are making news judgments about newsworthiness. And so the most prominent, the kings and the presidents and the movie stars who capture the public's attention are going to get a big obituary. A little bit later, he says, we write obituaries according to the scale of the individual. So we make these calculations. We actually put word lengths on human beings. Mm. And so, for an example, like when Pope John Paul II died, his obit ran over like 13,000 words. Other people don't even get a thousandth. And maybe we think, oh, this is just like the New York Times. This is just the big scale paper. But this happens at the local level too. And I think going back to cost, it costs a lot of money to print one of these things. Even in the Laramie Boomerang, our local paper, the cost starts at $140 for 150 words. And so I think there are all these really complicated contingencies placed on the promise of remembrance. And I think it's a pretty empty promise at the end of the day. I would love to hear a little bit about how you came to true crime, if you want to talk more about that, and also the history of true crime, because I think that's super fascinating and has made some really interesting historical shifts. Yes. So to start, Mary-Kate and I started talking about this project because both of us were addicted to true crime. and. Mary-Kate mentioned earlier that she's looking specifically sometimes at the New York Times obituaries because I think both of us are interested in like the mass media, like big cultural texts. Mm -hmm. So in the true crime podcasting world, that is two shows called My Favorite Murder and Crime Junkie. And those are the shows, among others, that like have 40 million downloads and the podcasters are so famous they're like stopped in the street even though this is like totally an audio thing and (laughs) you shouldn't be able to recognize a podcaster nobody will recognize us (laughs) but you know so like I was really interested because when I was doing my student teaching I coincidentally went up to Cody and so those long drives it's about five hours from Laramie and I would listen to these podcasts just on repeat And it was entertaining to me and I was just kind of consuming them. And then 
we started to talk about them because I think I asked you, do you listen to these when you drive? You know, and there's a creepy stretch of highway right in there where you get oh. chills down your back listening to these crazy details. And- no, it's horrifying. <laughs> there is nothing, nothing between Laramie and Casper. Yeah. Besides Medicine Bow and some windmills. Yes. Like in Wyoming, when you're driving, it is like vacant stretches of highway, <laughs> not another soul on the road. And like abandoned houses. Yes. Where you're like, what is this? Somebody owns this land. What is this just like empty ass house doing here? Yeah. But so then you listen to this podcast and they're like, and then a car came in front of her and behind her and ran her off the road and they took her out of her car and then cut her head off. And then you're like panicking on the drive, but you can't, you cannot stop listening to it. And since then, I've read a lot of scholarship about it. I've done a lot of wide listening trying to listen to different iterations of the true crime podcast, the beginning, the end, people who are doing different stuff with it. And there's a scholar named Susan Sontag who talks about war photography mm-hmm. and photos of really gruesome and violent things. I think it can also be applied to podcasts where she says that there's something strangely pornographic about it where it's so wrong and so interesting and people can't look away which I think is a very interesting way to start thinking about these things. That's sort of how I came to it, where I started to wonder, what is it exactly about us as like young women, privileged bodies in a safe place that makes us so fascinated by tales of gruesome, gruesome crime? And I think that we've said this before, but I just want to reiterate that because that's where I come from, we are never critiquing the listeners of these podcasts, right? Yeah. Like, it's such a weird thing that we do, but it's like, it's a cultural phenomenon. It's nobody's fault that yeah. we're doing it this way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the practitioners of these genres are doing some unethical things, really, but are also just taking advantage of a situation where they can make a ton of money. Yeah. Like, the My Favorite Murder Women make the most money out of any podcasters except for Joe Rogan. They're like, crushing it isn't that outrageous it's crazy solana <laughs> we gotta get busy we know, gotta know. get after it so i want to tell you a little bit about the history of true crime yes but please. to, to do so that excited. i'm gonna bounce back and forth a little bit because what happens is the true crime genre right now is dominated by women women mostly listen to it mostly women produce write host it ourselves included ourselves included <laughs> except for greg who's our producer and <laughs> Greg just told us that he's growing his hair out so that he could fit the look. So that from behind, if we were at CrimeCon, we would fit the bill. <laughs> but basically that transition to the female dominated genre happens like in the 80s when Anne Rule writes The Stranger Beside Me. And I don't know if you mm. know this. I didn't know. I've heard of this book because it's like a bestseller. Mm-hmm. But she was literally buddies with Ted Bundy. Yeah. So this is also like a moment of opportunity, which I think is so interesting because it would shape the fate of the genre forever. So she writes this book about Ted Bundy. This leads to women becoming more interested. Perhaps they were always interested, right? There's that study that's like women have always been picking up books about true crime. Partly they think it's because it's a survival mechanism. Partly it's because they see their own vulnerability in these stories. But this is when women start writing and taking over. What happens next is in the 2000s, the internet comes out, maybe a little bit before that, but this is when it's accessible, the 2000s. And a woman named Michelle McNamara starts True Crime Diary. And True Crime Diary literally has like pink frilly fonts and flowers in the margins. And she starts writing about crime. But in the way that we now think of it, where she Googles who was here at this time? What does the car look like? She can pull up maps. So she's really using the internet in a way to tell her story. She's the woman that coined the term the Golden State Killer, right? Mm-hmm. So she was using her own crowdsourcing from the blog where people would interact and post their theories and comments and her internet skills to try to crack this case. And that's a huge shift in the genre because before it was looking at gruesome murder that had happened and describing what had happened 
And now it was getting into what I was talking about before, which is like, let's solve this case. The reason The Stranger Beside Me is controversial for me is because it comes from a long history of very exploitative genre. It's kind of complex to think about, but basically the genre hasn't always been housed in like nonfiction. So if we break it down to its simplest part, that true crime is telling somebody a story of a violent event. That can happen in so many different forms, right? It can happen in fiction where a true story is like fictionalized. It can happen in photographs that document very atrocious things that are happening and come with a story. So the history of true crime revolves around this idea of telling stories of bad things that have happened. Really, it starts in like Puritan England in the U.S., where somebody would commit a murder and people would be curious of what was going on. So they'd print out pamphlets and flyers. And so then people would literally like gather around the courthouse and try to see the execution because that, you know, death equals death in Puritan England. But I also think it starts before that. And these are some claims that I'm making in the written portion of my thesis. So there's a lot of work that gets there. But I think a slave narrative could count as a true crime text. I think that Edgar Allan Poe's detective fiction is a very key part of the true crime schema because it gets people very interested in what we would recognize now as true crime, which includes the investigation, mm-hmm. right? So he was writing about like a very famous detective character. And so that kind of like forms what we know of as the true crime genre. There's a few other key texts in there that I'm not going to mention. <laughs> but basically, these texts, including things like lynching photographs, which I think count as true crime, right? Because they tell a story of a crime. Revolve around the white woman and the white female victim. And the reason that gets really political is because the white female victim is a very valuable thing because she's a piece of property. And when something happens to her, we don't grieve. Instead, we leap into action. Mm -hmm. And usually that action is killing a black or brown man that we think is responsible for it and by saying we i'm talking about like white society white men really so white men use the white female body to cause harm to black men and to exclude black and brown victims so if like the most valuable victim is the white victim why would you ever talk about a different one Mm -hmm. i think is some of the logic that drives the history of the true crime genre. So think about like In Cold Blood. In Cold Blood is the first iteration of the true crime nonfiction that's like legible to modern people as this is true crime. But In Cold Blood is like super fascinated with Nancy Clutter. And she's not really like humanized in the same kind of way where, you know, she's like this cute girl and it says like she would have made a great wife one day. And then Truman Capote uses the crime that's already been solved to make himself famous. He said he wanted to write the next great American novel. Mm -hmm. When he started out on In Cold Blood, he didn't even know what he was going to write about yet. And so he really jumped on this opportunity to sort of exploit the tragedy that happened to this young girl and her family to make a sensational novel that immediately blew up. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. And then this is when true crime becomes entertainment, right? That's not to say that earlier iterations weren't entertainment, but this is when people are really seeking out the standard format of somebody's murdered, who done it, who's going to figure it out. We rely on things like the police in true crimes, true crime novels, you know, which really sort of discounts how some people are, are always already violated by the police and can't rely on the police in the same way that white women can. So fast forward to the 2000s where we left off with Michelle McNamara and these crime blogs start popping up. People are super fascinated, kind of opens and merges with investigative journalism because they're doing the same kind of tactics to solve cases. And then 2014 happens and the podcast Serial comes on to the market. So Serial is written and hosted by Sarah Koenig and it changes the game. The bummer part about Serial for me is that it did so many things right. What it did is it disguised 
a conversation about wrongful conviction and it didn't exploit the victim and that didn't stick (laughs) the only thing that stuck was the format because people just ate it up they could listen to this like horrible gruesome thing while they were doing other things driving in their car doing the dishes and suddenly all these other podcasts start popping up and that's where we are today with my favorite murder and crime junkie where they're super popular People even do, like, there's girls that do their makeup or there's makeup wearing people that will do their makeup and tell stories of crime, like on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's something to consider, and I hope that we will, that it's so ingrained into the femme world. And I think there's different claims to be made that, like, it's ingrained, violence is ingrained into the femme experience in a lot of ways. But that is my brief history of true crime. I think that's so interesting, and I just love to hear you talk about the history of it. Thank you. I also can't stop thinking about the time I was out on a run. Mm -hmm. I don't run anymore, but once. (laughs) Once upon a time, that was the thing I did. And I went out for a run and was listening. I believe it was Crime Junkie. I think I was listening to an episode of Crime Junkie about a girl who is murdered. Like, Mm -hmm. she gets picked Mm -hmm. up whilst on a run and murdered. And I was running down the road and kept like peeking over my shoulder and like (laughs) well like I couldn't stop listening why didn't I just turn it off it's so addicting because you need to know Mm -hmm. I think we've had this conversation where you feel like you could have a a leg up Mm -hmm. if something like this happened to you if you heard enough of these stories yeah and I convince myself this all the time I'm like I always lock the door and Mm -hmm. I'm like 90% of people always lock the door that's not like a skill of mine I just feel like it is you know I think because I've told so many people that I'm looking at these things and we're doing this podcast and I'm doing this project, like women will always say that to me. Yeah. And I'm like, we are just giving ourselves anxiety. And I think also normalizing it by like telling each other this, you know, but I think it happens to so many women, at least in my personal life that I hear Mm -hmm. that get into it and they're interested and they can't stop. And that's what I mean. There's something strangely addictive about how bad it is. Yeah. And bad and scary and violent. And, you know. Yeah. Well, and I think so often rhetoric towards women is about advocating for your own protection and survival. And again, it's like all these dumb tips mm-hmm. that people will just hand out to you unsolicited often. Yeah. Where they're like, don't walk alone in the dark and lock your doors <laughs> and like carry your keys in between your in between your knuckles yeah. if you like. And like I downloaded this app. It's not called Noom because that's the dieting one. Uh, yeah. Don't do that. That's just fasting. Don't do, don't do Noom. <laughs> but there, it's like it's called Noonlight and you hold a button down until you feel safe. And then if you let the button off without entering your password, it'll call the cops to your location. And... I'm like, what are we doing in this world where I need to have this app on my phone and press down this thing to walk home at night? Because A, I've given myself anxiety by listening to too many podcasts. And B, it's not safe to be a woman in the world all the time, especially for some women. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so strange how we give advice to women to stay alive. Isn't that insane? That like, it's like tactics for survival. Yeah. In like the most basic everyday activities getting yourself home, getting yourself back to your car. Those freaking like claws that you can put on your keychains or pink pepper spray for Christ's sakes. Yeah. Did you know in England you're not allowed to have pepper spray? So like, so girls can't have it on their keys, which <laughs> have I ever used my pepper spray? No. Do I have it? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. I also think this conversation cannot be separated from a conversation about vulnerability. Yes. And this goes back to that Judith Butler essay that I re- I revisited it today, which I think is why it's on my brain so much. Certain bodies are just more vulnerable mm-hmm. than others. And it's not the purpose of this podcast to diagnose why, but the truth is, is that it's true that some people are more vulnerable and face violence at much higher rates than, Absolutely. say, you or I, you know, as privileged white women in a small town. Yeah, without a doubt. But that's not to say that all women don't face some kind of threat in this patriarchy society that we live in. But I also think that when I started looking at these podcasts, I was really hoping to find equity in the storytelling until I realized that these podcasts are exploiting the stories of dead women for entertainment. 
and suddenly I'm like, don't touch anybody else, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that I'm trying to change my attitude of what exactly does it mean to tell stories fairly in this setting? And Ooh. and as we get to further episodes, I hope that we can get there and talk about that. But Yeah. And I'm sure it's something that we'll have our own struggles with a certain mm-hmm. amount because in order to talk about the ways in which stories are told, we will have to retell the ways that stories have been told. Yeah. And sometimes that in and of itself can feel potentially damaging and harmful. And I certainly don't think we're going to solve it, but I think we can dig into it in hopefully productive ways. That's my hope. No, I think so too. And I think that's exactly why we wanted to do this podcast Yes. Is just to ask people to think with us. Yes. Of like, please. people have already been doing this work. Great podcasters, great obituary thinkers and writers and scholars. But our job, you and I and some of these listeners, is just to consider along with them. What are we doing that's harmful? What are we listening to that's harmful? How can we think about it differently? How can we look at it differently? And I think that that's a meaningful exercise. I think we are both engaged in a project of trying to point out the blind spots in each of our respective genres. But I, of course, hope that listeners tell us what our blind spots are. Yeah. Everyone's got them. It doesn't help anybody to just, like, let them go. We know in the nature of these projects that we're going to cause some harm. That's just the nature of the storytelling. But what we actually want to do is change the format of this podcast where it's a dialogue. Tell us. Let us know so that we can just keep improving and be better and better because that's our mission anyways. Yeah. So if we're trying to grow alongside each other with your help, that would be beneficial. With that happy note, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so looking forward to digging into this with you. I feel so lucky and privileged to be here. I thank you both. Yeah. And I'm really, really looking forward to next week because we get to start digging into actual case studies and stories. I am also very thankful. Thank you for listening and tuning in. And as always, be a blessing, not a curse. Take care, everyone. This is the latest from the Deadbeat. That is Mary Kay Gorman. And that is Solana Quistorf. And we want to thank you for listening. If you like what you heard here, tell a friend. And then definitely check out our website, thedeadbeatpodcast.com. There we will have links to research, cool extra content, and all the material referenced in the episode. And we'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, questions, feedback, and ideas for future episodes to comments at deadbeatpodcast.com. As always, a huge thank you to our producer, Greg Ronco, without whom this project would not be possible. Thank you to the English department at the University of Wyoming, specifically our thesis and reading exam committees for supporting us in our scholarly endeavors, no matter how odd they may be.